On behalf of the Graham Convention and Visitors Bureau, this is Red Stegall, and I'd like to welcome you to the Young County Historical Driving Tour. But before we get started, I'd like to give you a short introduction to Young County history. The great state of Texas has a very proud and colorful history. And the same could be said for Young County, whose location was so important to the pioneer history of Texas. A major U.S. military installation, Fort Belknap, was situated in this county to police Indian problems. One of two Indian reserves located in this part of Texas was right here in this county. And several famous trails and routes, such as the Goodnight Loving Trail and the Butterfield Overland Stage Route, passed through this county and possibly the most dangerous stretch of travel anywhere in the 1860s and 1870s passed through Young County, referred to as the Salt Creek Prairie. It's where the graves of unfortunate pioneers killed by Indians dotted the landscape. A major buffalo migration route passed through here and it greatly influenced the Western economy for both settlers and Indians. These same fertile grasses that were good for buffalo would be good for cattle and would set in motion one of the nation's great industries. So much happened here in those years that four movies or TV miniseries are based on events that occurred in Young County, and we haven't even mentioned the oil boom era of the 1920s that spawned another great industry. So as you drive on our tour, let your imagination roam to those tough, dangerous times that made this great state and county so colorful. Now the trip will take about three hours if you make all the stops and spend about 30 minutes at Fort Belknap and five minutes at the other sites. This CD is user friendly. Every track is either a direction to the next location or information about the historic site. For instance, track two gives directions to the first historic location, Fireman's Park in Graham. Track three tells you about it. And then track four gives you directions from Fireman's Park to the next location, which is Fort Belknap. Remember, if you turn off your CD player, when you turn it back on, it will return to the track location where it was when you turned it off. So find the traffic light at 4th Street and Elm, which is also Highway 16 on the downtown square. Now this is your starting point. From here, you will proceed north. If you get confused, we've included a map. So take a look at it. If you're now at Old Post Office Museum and Art Center, OPOMAC, Go east on 3rd Street around the arch to the light at Elm Street. Take a left, and the next light is at 4th and Elm. By the way, Opelmac hours are noon to 4 p.m. Thursday and Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday, and 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Sunday. And we highly encourage you to visit our museum and art center and to watch the DVD, Young County Images, which portrays an excellent summary of Young County history. So go to the corner of 4th and Elm, Switch the CD to track two and let your journey begin. To begin, you should be at the stoplight at 4th and Elm facing north. Go north on Elm, which is Highway 16, through the next stoplight to the second light at the intersection with Highway 67 south and get in the left turn lane. The distance from the light at 4th and Elm to this light is about four-tenths of a mile. Turn left onto Highway 67 and proceed about three-tenths of a mile just past Farm to Market Road 61 and turn right into Fireman's Park. Go straight about one-tenth of a mile where signs will direct you to the first historical marker on the tour, Addie M. Graham. Signs will then direct you to the second historical marker, which is 
only about one-tenth of a mile from this marker. At the second marker, which tells of the Graham Salt Works, you can see a bridge across Salt Creek. If you cross this bridge, a path will go left and lead you a short distance to a dam. After you've arrived at the first marker, go to track three, which describes both markers at site one. Addie M. Graham was the wife of Colonel E.S. Graham, one of the co-founders of the city of Graham. She set the standard for philanthropy in Graham, where the fortunate give their time and money for the benefit of all who live here. Addie Graham gifted the water plant to the city, the remnants of which you can see today. This was the first donated city water treatment facility in the whole United States. The dam on Salt Creek supplied the plant with the water. Now, Fireman's Park was land donated by the Graham family, and that's the reason for the name of the park, because this is where the Graham firemen would fill their horse-drawn wagon cart for the protection of the town. Now, why don't you turn off your CD player and we'll take a short drive to the next historical marker in the park. Salt Creek derives its name from the numerous salt springs. The promising village of Graham was located near the old salt works, which were first operated by Judge Martin Bowers and later by Captain A.B. Gant and purchased by the Graham brothers in 1871. G.A. and Colonel E.S. Graham erected a more expensive plant at the salt works, but rising transportation costs caused the enterprise to be abandoned. Now, let's go to track four, and we'll give you directions to the next stop on the tour. Site two is Fort Belknap. Your next destination will be Fort Belknap. Retrace your travel out of Fireman's Park to Highway 67. Go back left and take the first left at Farm to Market Road 61, just yards from where you get back on Highway 67. From this point, you will travel 9.6 miles to the entrance of the fort. Your speed limit on Farm to Market 61 will range from 45 to 55 miles per hour. Just a few yards farther down Farm to Market 61 from the Ford entrance, on the right is the entrance to the Belknap Civilian Cemetery, and you'll want to visit that. From the entrance to the cemetery is three-tenths of a mile, and you will open one gate into the cemetery. When you enter the main gate to the fort, bear left, and in a short distance, you will see the original well, which is in front of the commissary building housing the museum. Now, go to track five for the history of the fort. Welcome to Fort Belknap, the hub of this area in the pioneer days. Fort Belknap was founded in 1851 in the second line of frontier forts, which included Fort Phantom Hill, Fort Chadburn, Fort Mason, and Fort McCavitt. Federal troops were assigned to these forts to protect the settlers against the raids of the Southern Plains Indians, mainly the Comanche and Kiowa. You are walking on the same land that General George Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga, General Philip Henry Sheridan, General William Tecumseh Sherman, and General Robert E. Lee traded. A who's who of the Civil War, yet it shouldn't be surprising that so much activity took place in this area in the 1850s. Three military trails and the Butterfield Overland stage route passed through this fort. Indian raids became especially severe when Fort Belknap was abandoned by federal troops in 1859. The federal government closed the two Brazos Indian reservations. In 1859, the fort would be used as a base for the thinly manned Texas Frontier Regiment. 
This skeleton group of Texas Rangers would be no match for the raiding party streaming down from Indian Territory. The town of Belknap sprang up only one half mile east of the fort location. The Indian agent, Major Robert Simpson Neighbors, was shot in the back and killed by Edward Cornett in August 1859. Major Neighbors had just returned from Indian Territory where he had led the Indians after the closing of the Brazos River Indian Reservations. Now, the cemetery is across the road from Fort Belknap and has his grave designated with a Texas Centennial Historical Marker. Fort Belknap sat between the lower and upper Brazos Indian Reservations, and they existed in Texas from 1854 to 1859. In 1867, Fort Belknap was again home for federal troops for six months and was decommissioned in September of 1867, with all troops being moved to Fort Griffin. During the Texas Centennial and in the 1930s, restoration projects were undertaken to restore the fort. Today, Fort Belknap is owned by Young County, and both the fort and the museum are open to visitors. We hope you take your time here, as this is one of our most historic sites. Now when you're finished, return to track six, and we'll give you directions to the next historic location, which is site three, the Elm Creek Raid. To proceed to our next site, the Elm Creek Raid, go 1.7 miles north on Farm to Market 61 from the Fort Belknap Gate to Highway 380. Turn left, which is west, on Highway 380 and proceed 6.8 miles to the first Elm Creek Raid historical marker. While you're on 380, you will pass a second state marker on the left, but we'll visit this site on the return to Newcastle. Approximately five-tenths of a mile west of the first Elm Creek marker is the Prophet Cemetery. Proceed straight through the gate to the back of the cemetery to view the second historical marker called Common Grave. Just before you reach the Prophet Cemetery is Prophet Road. Down this road, five-tenths of a mile, is a bridge that crosses Elm Creek, and here you can see the deep-cut bank along which the raid occurred. One word of caution. If you should come out from Prophet Road to go left east on 380, there's a blind hill where oncoming traffic can be very hazardous. We recommend you turn right, which is west, and turn around at the Prophet Cemetery to proceed back east. Now, go to track seven, and we'll tell you the story of the Elm Creek Raid. The Elm Creek Raid occurred October 13, 1864. It's considered one of the largest Indian raids in Texas history, as an estimated 600 to 1,000 Comanche, Kiowa, Kiowa, Apache, and Cheyenne warriors were involved. The main raid and its subplots have been the basis for several books. For example, a John Wayne movie, The Searchers, and a mid-1990s three-part TV miniseries, Black Fox, Blood Horse, Good Man, and Bad. This miniseries starred the late Christopher Reeves and Tony Todd of Star Trek fame. In 1864, the frontier was sparsely settled as men had left the area to fight in the Civil War. The Texas Frontier Regiment, manned by Texas Rangers, was a tough group of men, but few in number. Knowing these factors, the Southern Plains Indians planned their most extensive raid ever that fall. 
Traveling during the Comanche full moon on October 12th, they arrived at the Elm Creek settlement west of Fort Belknap around noon of the 13th. The settlement consisted of individual log cabins along Elm Creek from the Brazos River some 12 miles upstream. The Indians first encountered Peter Harmonson and his son Perry, who escaped by fleeing into a thicket and returning fire very effectively. A second settler was not so lucky. Joel Meyer, who was hunting for lost oxen, was killed and scalped and became the first casualty of the raid. The Fitzpatrick homestead was next in line. From historical accounts, two settlers, Millie Susanna Durkin and Jim Johnson, were killed immediately. Jim was the son of African-American pioneer Britt Johnson, and Britt was trading in Weatherford that day. Taken hostage were Elizabeth Carter Fitzpatrick, her son Joe Carter, her two granddaughters Millie and Lottie Durkin, a grandson, and Britt Johnson's wife Mary and their son and daughter. While the hostages were being taken back to Indian Territory, Joe Carter became too ill to travel and was burned alive by the savages. As you travel northwest along Elm Creek, Thomas Hamby and his son had concealed their women and children and those of a neighboring family in caves near their house. The men rode ahead of the Indians to spread the alarm to other homesteads in the valley and to lead the Indians away from their hidden relatives. They reached William Bragg's land in time to give his family and Judge H.D. Williams' family a chance to hide in the thickets along Elm Creek. Two 15-year-old boys with rifles were left to guard three women and nine children. The men rode onto the fortified ranch house where they took shelter. The men held off an hour-long attack by the Indians, losing two or three of the men in the attempt. Thomas Hamby, with a wry sense of humor, wrote years later, I guess I was under the bed, for I was the only one who didn't get shot. No, that won't do, for there was no room for me under any of the beds. Three or four families of women and children were already under the beds. The settlers later regarded Thomas Hamby as a hero and credited him with saving many lives that day. The exact number of Indian casualties couldn't be determined as the dead and wounded were carried back to Indian territory by the warriors. The band of Indians broke off the attack and headed north with all the horses and cattle they could steal. They met John McCoy and his son Miles. They killed and scalped them both. The Texas Rangers camping near Fort Belknap took up the pursuit and encountered some 300 Indians. They retreated to the McCoy house where they rescued Mrs. McCoy and a neighbor woman as they moved back to Fort Murrah. Troops and local citizens, including Charles Goodnight, pursued the Indians in their retreat to the north, but they never got close to catching up with a large band of Indians. The final count tallied eight settlers and five Texas Rangers killed with seven hostages taken to Indian camps. Britt Johnson arrived back from Weatherford to discover the horrible scene and realized his remaining family had been taken hostage. He immediately began planning to go into Indian country to retrieve both his family and the Fitzpatrick family. This incredibly dangerous feat would take longer than he planned, but with help of Comanche chief Asa Harvey, nicknamed Milky Way, the hostages would be released with the exception of Millie Durkin. The Indians said this small girl had died during the winter of captivity in 1864, but doubt existed. In 1933, an old woman dressed as an Indian arrived in Young County claiming to be Millie Durkin. History research continues to reveal there were many Indian captive stories throughout the West with suspicious conclusions. Historians still debate whether or not it was Millie. 
A second Elm Creek raid occurred on July the 17th, 1867. Rice Carlton, Reuben Johnson, and Patrick Prophet were all abducted and killed by Indians. These young men were buried in a common grave in the Prophet Cemetery. After the release of the hostages, Britt Johnson moved his family to Parker County and went into the freight business. History is unclear what the motives were when Kiowas ambushed Britt Johnson and his companions, Paint Crawford and Dennis Curitan, in January of 1871 on the Salt Creek Prairie, six miles northwest of Graham. The attack occurred as the three were hauling goods from Fort Richardson to Fort Griffin. Britt Johnson fought bravely in the open prairie. He used his mortally wounded horse for a shield and spent over 100 cartridges before his murder. The Kiowas were led by Kiowa prophet Mamanti. Five months later, he was a key figure in the historic Warren Wagon Train Massacre, which will be featured on track 23. Proceed to track eight for directions to our next site, the Joseph Woolfolk Texas Historical Marker. To proceed to the next marker, which you passed coming to the Elm Creek Raid site, proceed back east on Highway 380, 5.7 miles from the Prophet Cemetery. This marker tells of Joseph Woolfolk, who we will discuss in Track 9. Joseph Woolfolk was a pioneer whose traits were admirable, a lawyer, Joseph served as a Texas Ranger and Confederate soldier. He arrived at Fort Belknap from Missouri in 1858 on the Butterfield Overland Stage. Joseph was paid $1,000 annually to survey for the Peters Colony, which encouraged settlement for the frontier. Woolfolk settled back in Kentucky after the war, but the lure of Texas forced his return in 1867. Joseph Woolfolk was appointed defense attorney for Satanta and Big Tree following the Warren Wagon Train Massacre of 1871, which is referred to by the government as the Salt Creek Massacre. Now, go to Track 10 for directions to your next location. Our next stop is the town of Newcastle. Please feel free to stop for a break and Take the time to walk among the buildings or perhaps stop at one of the several convenience stores in town. Leaving the Woolfolk marker, proceed east 2.7 miles to the stop sign, where 380 East continues after a right turn. At 1.7 miles from the Woolfolk marker, note the sign Coal Mine Road, and then proceed to track 11. In 1908, the Wichita Falls and Southern Railroad came to Newcastle to ship the rich coal that was being mined from the four coal mines in this area. Joseph J. Perkins developed Perkins Townsite Company, laid out the town in 1908, and began selling lots on September the 22nd, 1908. Newcastle was incorporated on February the 11th, 1915. Newcastle was named for the British coal mining town of the same name, and from 1910 to 1917, the coal mining industry peaked with approximately 160 miners employed at a monthly payroll of $16,000. The 1920s brought the oil and gas era into Young County, and the coal mining industry slumped. Newcastle also flourished in this industry as several excellent oil fields were found in this area. Now, let's go to track 12, for directions to the next site.
From the stop sign at the intersection on Highway 380, go right six-tenths of a mile to the Harmonson Ranch State Historical Marker on the right. Go to track 13 for the discussion. We mentioned earlier that the Britt Johnson State Marker near the approximate side of his ambush will take you off the tour route some 15 to 20 minutes. If you desire to visit this marker, travel east on Highway 386.7 miles from the Harmonson Marker to Farm to Market Road 1769. Take a left, and the marker is about five-tenths of a mile on the right. The state historical marker is located on the Fort Griffin-Fort Richardson Road. This road initially was a Butterfield Stagecoach Road. The ambush site is 1.5 miles east of this marker on private property. Now, to get back on the tour, retrace your route back through Newcastle to Highway 251, which will take you to Olney. The old Harmonson Rancho was established in 1854, three years after the establishment of Fort Belknap and two years before the organization of Young County. Coming from Kentucky, Harmonson settled in Peters Colony in 1845 in Denton County. The Peters Colony was established by the Texas Immigration and Land Company to attract settlers to the frontier. And Harmonson was to be one of the organizers of Young County and became its first chief justice. He also helped organize Young County's First Methodist Church. Unfortunately, he died January 9, 1865 at the age of 68 from arrow wounds inflicted by an Indian raiding party. This man truly had a major impact on the settlement of this area. Now, if you decide not to visit the Britt Johnson marker, go to track 14 for directions to the next site, number seven, the town of Alney. After leaving the Harmonson marker, go back into Newcastle. Proceed on Highway 380, less than one-tenth of a mile west, past the stop sign at which you turned earlier. Take a ride on Highway 251 and proceed 12.1 miles into Olney to the intersection with Highway 114. If you like, you can go to Track 15 to hear about the history of the city, which you will be entering soon. When you get to Highway 114 and are ready to proceed to the next site, That'll be number eight. It's a state marker for the Little Salt Creek Raid. Then go to track 16. The town of Olney was settled in 1879 by Boone McCarty, L. Panconin, and the Neely brothers. The John Groves donated two acres of land for a town site, and J.M. Briscoe built the first store. A post office was established, and G.W. Hutchings agreed to carry the mail from Farmer to Olney. County historical records indicate the name of Olney came either from a news article noticed by Hutchings and the Farmer Postmaster concerning Olney, Illinois, or from Richard Olney, who was Secretary of State under President Cleveland. The first school was started in 1891, and the town was incorporated when the Wichita Falls and Southern Railway came to town in 1909. One of the earliest settlements in the area was established by a group of German settlers northeast of Olney in 1883. And if you'd like to visit the state historical marker located at the new Lutheran church which they founded, go left on Highway 114, 2.8 miles through downtown Olney to Avenue O. 
Go right a short distance to Oak Street, turn left and go a short distance, and you'll see the church. The cemetery and the location of the original Lutheran church can be reached by going back to Highway 114 on Avenue O and turning right. Go six-tenths of a mile to Farm Market 2178 and turn right 1.3 miles to the cemetery on the right. One of Albany's most noted events is the one-armed dove hunt held every second Saturday in September, and this always brings up the question, how does a one-armed person shoulder the gun and pull the trigger? Well, one of the most popular mechanisms is a trigger release which is activated when the hunter bites down on a small rubber bulb. One frustrated two-armed hunter who was soundly outshot one day by a one-armed hunter was heard to say, every time he smiled, a dove dropped. Olney has been a very industrious and integral part of Young County, a town of which all the residents should be very proud. Now for directions to the next site, number eight, the Little Salt Creek Massacre, go to track 16. From the stop sign at which you intersected Highway 114, go east on Highway 114, 5.5 miles to the state historical marker on the left. Now, as you leave Olney, you might want to go to track 17 and hear the story of the Little Salt Creek Raid. Less than a mile west of Site 8, exists a small rise where 57 Indians conducted a six-hour attack on 12 cattlemen on May 16, 1869, a damp spring day. Twelve pioneers were moving 500 head of cattle that morning, and two of the cowboys, W.C. Kutch and C.L. Shap Carter, left the rest of the group to round up strays. Indians spotted the two and attacked. Now, the two could have made it to cover and escaped, but bravely chose to return to their group under heavy fire and join them in the fight. Together, the cowboys took refuge in a buffalo wallow on Little Salt Creek and began their courageous stand. Armed only with cap and ball six-shooters, they repeatedly held off the Indians attacking from the hill. No doubt these cattlemen took a toll on their adversaries, but not without a price. William Crow, whose father John Crow was killed one year later in an Indian attack, was the first one killed. John Limley was wounded and would die later that evening. Carter was the next to be gravely wounded as the rest continued their valiant stand. In fact, all but two of the 12 were wounded in this prolonged siege. By four o'clock that afternoon, with ammunition running low, the cowboys knew they might be literally on their last leg. As the Indians met on the hill to discuss their next move, all of the cowboys who could stood and yelled wildly at the Indians. This must have confused the attackers since they left the battered cowboys who waited for help which finally arrived by evening. Two years later, a fourth cowboy, Jason McLean, would die of causes contributed to wounds received in this battle. The Indians succeeded in stealing over half the cattle but would not receive the satisfaction of routing this outnumbered band. This stand by this group of cowboys would go down as one of the bravest in North Texas pioneer history. The Little Salt Creek Raid is well documented in several books. Now go to track 18 for directions to the next site, number nine, and we'll hear the story of a famous pioneer landmark, Cottonwood Springs.
When you leave the Little Salt Creek Raid historical marker, continue east on Highway 114, 2.8 miles to the roadside park on the left. Turn in here and you'll see a state historical marker describing Site 9, Cottonwood Springs. Just one half mile past the state marker on Highway 114 is the site of Cottonwood Springs. In 1849, the pioneer explorer Randolph B. Marcy stopped at Cottonwood Springs. On his way to California, he was mapping out a route for the gold seekers. Marcy returned in 1851. He was looking for a site for a frontier fort in the area, and that led to the establishment of Fort Belknap. Then Marcy accompanied Major Robert Simpson neighbors in 1854 as he searched for a suitable location for an Indian reservation. The result of this trip was the location of the Lower Brazos River Indian Reservation located near Graham. In 1859, Major Robert S. Neighbors would lead the Indians from the two failed reservations on the Texas version of the Trail of Tears. This final trip led the Indians from Texas to their new home at the Wichita Agency in Oklahoma. On this sad day, the Indians from the two reservations met at the Cottonwood Springs to find that the spring was dry. Water returned to the old landmark spring eventually, but due to dry conditions in 1974 and dropping water tables, the spring has ceased to be active. Now, go to track 20 for directions to our next site, number 10 the town of Loving. After you leave the Cottonwood Spring marker, continue eastward on Highway 114, seven miles to the intersection with Highway 16. You'll go through the town of Loving, which is site number 10, named for the famous Oliver Loving, whose demise is portrayed in the epic novel and TV miniseries, Lonesome Dove. Go to track 21 as you leave the Cottonwood Springs marker to hear this story. Your next site after Loving will be off Highway 16, so turn south here to continue the tour. Track 22 will give you instructions to the next site after visiting Loving, and this is site 11, the location of the Warren Wagon Train Raid. Our next stop, Site 10, is the town of Loving. Old Loving is one mile south of the present town of Loving. The town was moved to the present site when the extension of the Gulf, Texas, and Western Railroad came to the area. The grandson of Oliver Loving gave a two-acre site for the formation of the town from their ranch holdings in that area. Now mention the name Oliver Loving, and immediately people are reminded of the great cattle driver in the final scenes of Lonesome Dove. The Goodnight Loving Cattle Trail has its origins in Young County with the trailhead beginning near Fort Belknap. Charles Goodnight owned a ranch in western Young County and was involved in the Elm Creek Raid. Charles Goodnight came to Central Texas as a nine-year-old boy in 1845 and by 1857 had moved northward to Black Springs, now the town of Oran in Palo Pinto County, to pursue the cattle business. He met Oliver Loving at about the same time. And although Loving was 24 years his senior, their common trade would bring them together nine years later to form one of the most famous partnerships in Texas history. Loving in those same years was more involved with moving cattle to Louisiana. His knowledge of cattle, plus Goodnight's desire to find a better market to the West, 
would put them together on their first trail drive in June of 1866. Gathering cattle from their ranches in Palo Pinto, Jack, and Young counties, they began their famous trek to the south from Fort Belknap with 2,000 head of cattle and 18 well-armed men. They traveled past Camp Cooper, through Old Fort Phantom Hill to Buffalo Gap, past Fort Chadburn and across the North Concho River, where they finally made a stop on the Middle Concho River for a more extended rest and watering. There was a good reason for that. The next 80 miles from the Middle Concho River to the Pecos River would be by far their toughest segment of the trail. No water existed on this 80-mile hell trip across the Stake Plains. Both cowboy and cattle were pushed to the limit. But finally through Castle Gap, past the deadly stagnant alkaline pools of the Pecos, they arrived at Horsehead Crossing on the main Pecos River after three days. Some of the herd was lost as they drowned or were bogged down in quicksand. With the remaining herd now watered and revived, they made their way up the Pecos to Fort Sumner, finding a starving Navajo reservation where the United States government was willing to pay a premium for the beef. $12,000 in gold, an enormous sum in 1866, made Goodnight and Loving's first trip a major success. Loving continued on to Denver with 500 head of cattle the government didn't want and realized more profit while Goodnight headed back to Texas to gather another herd. Goodnight drove another herd from North Texas to Bosque Grande and met Loving there to winter with the cattle selling 100 head at a time in Santa Fe. In the summer of 1867, Goodnight and Loving started on another trail drive from North Texas toward Fort Sumner. From the beginning of this drive, Indian problems would plague them, starting at Camp Cooper and continuing as they reached the Pecos. Due to these delays, Goodnight and Loving became concerned their market at Santa Fe wouldn't wait, so Loving agreed to go ahead of the main group to consummate the contract. He was accompanied by a loyal, longtime hand of Goodnight's, one-armed Bill Wilson. Because of the large number of Comanches roaming the Pecos River area, Goodnight warned Loving and Wilson to travel only by night. After two days, Loving became impatient and on the third day, traveled during daylight to make better time. And while crossing the plain between the Delaware and Black and Pecos Rivers, they were spotted by a band of Comanches. Loving and Wilson quit the trail and took a direct course to the Pecos, taking refuge in an undercut ditch on the river. During the siege, Loving took a bullet through his wrist and into his side. That night, the wounded Loving convinced Wilson to go back for help. Shedding his boots and most of his clothes, the one-armed man amazingly swam the river and began his torturous journey back to find Goodnight. In the interim, the wounded Loving, feverish and in pain, fought off the Indians for three days. Finally, on the third night, having been without food or sleep for three days, he crawled to the river and swam to a crossing some six miles upstream. His ordeal wasn't over. He laid there another two days before being picked up and escorted to Fort Sumner by three Mexicans and a German boy. Wilson finally arrived at Goodnight's camp, then led him to the ambush site. They found Loving had left, so they proceeded on to Fort Sumner. Loving was to die of gangrene from his wounds on September 25, 1867, and was temporarily buried at Fort Sumner. But before his death, Loving had asked Goodnight to bury him in Texas. So in February of 1868, Goodnight returned with loving son Joe and carried the body back to be buried in Greenwood Cemetery at Weatherford. 
Another famous loving was Oliver's son, J.C., who was a co-founder of the Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association. Now, go to track 22 for directions to the next site, number 11. That's the location of the Warren Wagon Train Massacre. From the intersection of highways 114 and 16, go south on highway 16, two and a half miles to Monument Road. Go left on Monument Road and proceed seven-tenths of a mile to the history marker and turn around on the right. There might be a bit of confusion, as the state historical marker is five-tenths of a mile down Highway 16 south from where you turn to go down Monument Road. Now, you can stop at this marker as you continue back to Graham, but the marker on Monument Road gives you a much better view and description of the raid. We recommend you not go to Track 23, which describes the raid, until you get to the turnaround and marker on Monument Road, as the story will fit better when you're at this location. At the large rock monument in front of you on Monument Road, this vantage point will enable you to understand the events of a stormy day in May of 1871. You would be looking directly at more than 100 impatient and deadly Kiowa warriors hiding behind the famous Conical Hill. Let's backtrack a little bit. Indians located at the Fort Sill Agency, overflowing with resentment against Texas, had continued to raid in the winter of 1871. The most notable of these raids was the killing of three African-American pioneers, including the famous Britt Johnson. Johnson had successfully negotiated the release of hostages taken in the Elm Creek raid in Young County in 1864. The leader of this attack was a sinister spiritual leader of the Kiowas, Mamantee, also known as the Owl Prophet. He would also play a major role in the Warren Wagon Train Massacre. The Johnson killing, plus numerous other Indian depredations, had incited Texans to plead for help from the United States government. General William T. Sherman, famous for the scorched earth policy in Georgia during the Civil War, arrived in Texas in May of 1871 to inspect the area. Sherman felt Texans had exaggerated the problem, but continued his inspection as he left Fort Belknap and traveled to Fort Richardson on May 17, 1871. Fort Richardson is where present-day Jacksboro is located. Sherman was escorted by a small number of soldiers, including General Randolph B. Marcy, the famous Western explorer. Now, the Salt Creek Prairie is a long stretch of flat plain extending several miles and sandwiched between two heavily timbered sandstone hills. That's Cox Mountain and Flat Top Mountain. This had been the old Butterfield Overland stage route, and numerous graves dotted the landscape where unfortunate pioneers had met death at the hands of Indian warriors. Halfway between these larger hill formations was a smaller, nameless conical hill. It was from behind this hill that more than 100 warriors watched as the troops passed. Mamantee, the owl prophet, would stand on this hill and change the course of history. For whatever reason, he forbid the group to attack this famous entourage, although the Indians outnumbered the soldiers at least four to one. Some say that he had a vision the night before that told him to let the first group of whites go by and attack the second group. 
This was a very unfortunate decision for the 10 wagons and 12 Teamsters carrying freight from Fort Richardson to Fort Griffin on the early afternoon of that fateful day. It had been almost 12 hours since Sherman had passed, and the warriors were overly anxious to attack. So as the wagons moved slowly from Cox Mountain West to an area near the Conical Hill, the attack began. Under stormy skies, the Indians streamed from behind the hill, and the wagon master ordered the wagons to form a circle. But the first Indians attacked before the circle could be closed. Then the Indians made it inside the incomplete corral and continued firing on the wagons and their drivers. Three drivers died in the first rush. Then the area was obscured by a thick pall of dust and smoke. Through an opening in the wagons, seven Teamsters broke through and made a dash towards the trees on Cox Mountain. The Indians gave chase and killed two, but five made it safely to the trees. The Indians then turned their attention to the wagons. They circled, firing their rifles until no shots were returned from the Teamsters. The older, experienced warriors cautiously approached the now silent wagons, but a young warrior bolted toward the wagons to make his coup. As he touched the wagons, a teamster raised the freight canopy and fired, striking the young brave in the head. The brave would later die of screwworms, and the teamster would be chained to a wagon tongue and slowly burned to death over an open fire. Conjecture is that he was still alive when this horrific act was performed, but we'll never know the real truth. The final count was seven dead, 10 wagons plus freight destroyed, and 41 mules taken by the Indians. The five surviving Teamsters who made it safely to Cox Mountain finally arrived at Fort Richardson late that night. They told their story to Sherman and completely altered the general's opinion of the Indian situation. He sent Ronald McKenzie to inspect the scene. McKenzie sent the description of the massacre site back to Sherman. McKenzie's troops placed the seven dead Teamsters in the bed of a wagon and buried it at the site and marked it with stones. McKenzie then set out to trail the Indians, and Sherman made plans to go to the Fort Sill Indian Reservation. After arriving at Fort Sill and being greeted by Indian agent Laurie Tatum, Sherman began his investigation. It wouldn't be difficult to locate the perpetrators. Satanta, the famous bugle-carrying Kiowa chief, boasted he had been the leader, along with Chiefs Big Tree and Satank. After several tense moments, Sherman's troops apprehended all three and began the journey back to Fort Richardson. On the way, Satank attempted escape and was killed and left on the side of the trail. In the first federal trial of Native Americans, Satanta and Big Tree were found guilty and sentenced to die. Their sentences were later commuted to life, and in a few years, both were released. Big Tree later converted to Christianity and became a respected Baptist deacon. Satanta, though, continued his old ways and was later confined in Huntsville, where he committed suicide by jumping from the second floor of the hospital prison on October the 11th, 1878. Does that sound familiar? In Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry's character Blue Duck meets the same fate. This massacre marked the beginning of the end for Kiowa, Comanche, and Kiowa Apache warriors. Military operations were stepped up, and by 1875, largely due to the efforts of Ronald McKenzie and his troops, Indian raids and killings in North Texas were finished. Now go to track 24, and we'll direct you back into Graham and to the side of the Marlowe brothers' ambush.
Proceed back to the intersection of Monument Road and Highway 16. You will take a left turn back to Graham. Go southwest, 8.2 miles. You will intersect Farm to Market Road 3491, just outside the city limits of Graham. This is also called Cliff Drive. Take a left on Farm to Market 3491 and proceed four-tenths of a mile to the 380 bypass at the four-way blinking light. Proceed straight through and go another six-tenths of a mile to the traffic signal light at the intersection of 4th Street and Cliff Drive. Then proceed straight through this intersection and in less than one-tenth of a mile, you will come to Farm to Market Road 2179, also called Finest Road. Take a left onto Finest Road and go seven-tenths of a mile to the bridge. On the other side of the bridge is a turnaround and historical marker. Now, as you leave the Warren Wagon Train site, you may want to go to track 25, which tells the Marlowe Brothers' story. It takes about eight minutes to narrate. You are now at the site of the famous ambush of the Marlowe Brothers. Stayed January the 16th, 1889. Walk down from the marker to the edge of the dry creek and you'll see the cut across the creek. This is the remnant of the trail that crossed Dry Creek at that time, but we're a little ahead of ourselves. So let's start from the beginning and take about eight minutes to tell you about this very controversial incident. The Marlowe Brothers story spans the years 1888 through 1892 and is recognized as one of the more famous yet controversial events in 19th century Young County history. Five books, several magazine articles and a movie Sons of Katie Elder, starring John Wayne, are all based on this story. A town in Oklahoma is named after the brother's father, and the Marlowe Brothers Museum is located there. In 1879, Congress passed a bill creating three federal courts in Texas, Dallas, Waco, and Graham. Graham's jurisdiction included Oklahoma, and this is where the story begins. In August 1888, Ed Johnson, the federal deputy sheriff, received notification from Sheriff Doc Burns in Colorado that the Marlows had stolen 40 head of horses from a Caddo Indian named Bar Sandy Bar. Johnson organized a posse and headed out to the area of Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where the brothers were living at the time. Before leaving for Oklahoma, Johnson supposedly received a second notification from Burns that the Indian had found the horses. Here's controversy number one. Why didn't Johnson call off the warrant? Johnson arrested four of the five brothers, Charlie, Alf, Boone, and Lou Ellen. The remaining brother, George, took the family and headed to Graham, where he hired out to Oscar Denson on the long bend of the Brazos, about eight miles from town. He arrived in Graham to help his brothers, and he was also arrested. By December of 1888, all bonded out of jail and were working for Denson awaiting trial. On December 17, 1888, Another indictment arrived, accusing one of the brothers, Boone, of killing a man in Vernon, Texas in 1886. That's controversy number two. Boone allegedly had been cleared of murdering this man on the basis of self-defense. Young County Sheriff Marion D. Wallace and Deputy Tom Collier proceeded to Long Bend to arrest Boone and a gunfight ensued. Sheriff Wallace was killed at this point. Here's controversy number three. Some accounts have Collier firing first, Boone returning fire and hitting Wallace, 
while other versions say that Boone Marlowe fired first. As Boone left to hide out in the area, Wallace was taken back to Graham by Collier, and there he lingered for several days before dying on Christmas Eve, 1888. It was said the entire community of Graham turned out on Christmas Day for the popular sheriff's funeral. Boone continued to hide out in a haystack and then a barn, which still stands, before making his escape January 7, 1889 to Hell's Creek near present-day Marlowe, Oklahoma. The other four brothers were arrested and put back in jail. Many of the citizens of Graham were in a dangerous lynching mood, and the Marlowe's, knowing this, successfully broke out of the second floor of the Young County Jail on January 14, 1889, using a pocket knife to scrape through the sandstone walls. The next day, they were caught on Connor Creek, and that's on present-day Wildcatter Gas Ranch. They were hiding in a cave and returned to Graham, where Charlie was leg-shackled to Alf and George was leg-shackled to Llewellyn, or Ellie. On January 16th, a mob tried to take the brothers out of the jail for lynching, but they were repelled by a tough group. One mobster, Robert Hill, was hit by Charlie and died two days later. Due to the volatile situation, the decision was made to move the prisoners to Dallas through Weatherford. At nine o'clock that cold, clear January night, the four brothers plus two other prisoners, Cliff and Burkhart, were loaded into wagons along with Sheriff Johnson and several guards. And although the prisoners were leg shackled, Sheriff Johnson at the last minute decided not to handcuff or tie the prisoners to the buckboard. As the prisoners' lead wagon crossed Dry Creek and ascended up the east bank, mobster Bruce Wheeler emerged from the tree line yelling, Halt! The firing began. Wheeler died first. Sam Cresswell, a guard, died next. The Marlows had armed themselves and began firing back. Both Alf and Ellie were killed on the spot. Charlie was seriously wounded and George received minor wounds. The last to die was Graham citizen Frank Harmonson, who came back firing after most of the mob had fled. Now alone, George freed himself and Charlie by amputating Alf's and Ellie's ankles with a pocket knife. Burkhart was freed from Cliff and took off, never to be heard from again. George, Charlie, and Cliff headed to Long Bend and barricaded themselves in the cabin. After a long standoff, federal authorities arrived and took the three to Dallas to await trial. The bodies of Alf and Ellie were returned to the Marlowe's and were buried in the finest cemetery in Jack County on January 20th, 1889. Boone, with a $1,500 bounty on his head, was poisoned by the brothers of his girlfriend. And after being poisoned, two holes were shot in his head to make it look legitimate. When the body was brought into Graham for the reward, a doctor, ironically named W.W. James Marlowe, who was no kin to the rest of them, discovered the poison, and the three were later arrested, although nothing was ever done to this conniving group. So the three Marlowe brothers, Alf, Ellie, and Boone, were all dead and buried in Finest Cemetery. The trial process would last from March 1889 until February of 1892. The Marlowe's and the conspiring mobsters were both tried. None of the remaining Marlowe's were ever found guilty. Three of the mobsters were found guilty in federal court and fined $5,000 and sentenced to 10 years in prison in April, 1891. In a state trial, seven mobsters were acquitted in November of 1891. 
In April 1892, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the decision of the Graham Court, which had found the three mobsters guilty a year earlier. The court granted a new trial, which effectively acquitted all three. One of the three hung himself in 1893. Earlier, two of the mobsters had died in jail of tuberculosis and typhoid fever while awaiting trial. The Marlowe's did win damages in a civil case in the spring of 1891. One final sad note. Oscar Denson, the farmer who befriended and employed the Marlowe's, was killed in 1892 by William Smith on grounds of self-defense. The summation of those who died directly or indirectly from this incident included Sheriff Wallace, the vigilante and the attempted storming of the jail, the three Marlowe's, Boone, Alf, and Ellie, the three Graham citizens at the ambush, Wheeler, Cresswell, and Harmonson, the suicide hanging by Wagner, the two deaths in jail, Williams and Collier, and finally, Oscar Denson. So not only did this ugly part of Young County history result in 12 deaths, it gave Graham and its court a very big black eye. The government moved the federal court from Graham in 1896. The two surviving Marlowe's, Charlie and George, moved to Colorado to live out useful lives and they actually helped put down the Crested Butte mine strike as deputies of Sheriff Doc Shores. Several of the buildings in this story still stand. For example, the building that housed the federal court and the first level of the old Young County Jail are sites on the walking tour of downtown Graham. And as we said, the cave where the Marlowe's hid is on Wildcatter Ranch. The next historical marker is just down this farm to market road. Directions are on track 26. To get to site 13, the Brazos River Indian Reservation School historical marker, continue east on farm to market 2179, 2.1 miles. The marker is on the right. Now, go to track 27 for the discussion of the Brazos River Indian Reservation. In the summer of 1854, General Randolph B. Marcy, under orders from the United States Department of War and Interior, and in accordance with an act of the Texas Legislature on February 6th, located two Indian reservations in West Texas. The first, the Lower Brazos Indian Reservation was comprised of 68,120 acres and was made up of Caddo, Anadarko, Waco, and Tonkawa Indians, plus splinter groups of Cherokee, Choctaw, Delaware, and Shawnee. The Upper Brazos River Indian Reservation, located about 40 miles from the Lower Indian Reservation, was to be occupied by Penitaka Comanches. It would be located around present-day Throckmorton and would comprise approximately 23,000 acres. Major Robert S. Neighbors, the general supervisor of all Indians in Texas, would provide direction for both the upper and lower reservations. Serving under him was Shapley Ross and John R. Baylor as agents for the lower and upper reservations, respectively. Ross was the father of well-known Indian fighter and future governor of Texas, Lawrence Sullivan Ross. Unfortunately, Baylor would be dismissed and later affect the reservations in a detrimental manner. 
Originally, around 800 Indians were settled on the lower reserve, with around 500 Comanche Indians settling the upper reserve. A contract was made to supply beef to the Indians, and J.J. Strum supervised agricultural pursuits of the various tribes. A school was started near present-day Graham under Zachariah Ellis Coombs. You are now a short distance from where this school once stood. Under the kind patience and guidance of neighbors in Ross, Lower Reserve Indians made especially great strides in farming techniques, planting mainly corn, wheat, vegetables, and melons. Still, an uneasy peace existed between the settlers and the reservation Indians. Any act of thievery in the area was blamed on the Indians, even though non-reserve Indians to the north were likely the culprits. The acts of white outlaws would also be blamed on the friendly tribes. To further fuel the growing tension, John R. Baylor was dismissed as upper reserve agent in early 1857 due to alleged misuse of agency funds. Fueled by bitterness towards neighbors and Indians in general, he started a newspaper in Mesquiteville, now Jacksboro, called The White Man. This further agitated relations between reservation Indians and the settlers, who tended to assume all Indians were bad. Two major confrontations created the final decision by government authorities to abandon the reservations. In December 1858, a group of Indians led by well-liked Chief Choctaw Tom was allowed off the lower reservation to hunt in Palo Pinto County. At daylight on the morning of December 27, 1858, a group of men from Erath County, led by Peter Garland, attacked the sleeping Indians and killed seven, including three women. None of the men ever went to trial for their deed. In May 1859, Baylor, along with 250 men, approached the lower reservation to destroy the Indians, but they were repelled after a confrontation with Captain J.B. Plummer. But upon leaving, they killed two elderly Indians and were pursued by 50 warriors led by Chief Jose Maria to the Marlin Ranch in Young County. Several of Baylor's men and Indians were killed and the group left for Palo Pinto County. With continuing threats and possible confrontations looming, the decision was made to move the Indians to the Wichita Agency in Oklahoma. On August the 1st, 1859, neighbors led the Indians on what might be called the Texas version of the Trail of Tears. In two weeks, the saddened Indians were placed at the Wichita Agency. They bid a tearful goodbye to their beloved major neighbors who returned to Belknap. But the hatred toward major neighbors back in Young County only compounded a sad ending to this story. After arriving in Belknap, neighbors were shot in the back by an Indian hater named Edward Cornett. Then later, Cornett was killed in the Belknap Hills by a posse headed by Sheriff Woolforth. For the next 15 years, the area in and around Young County would be a very dangerous place to live due to Indian depredations. Ironically, members of the same tribes that were displaced from the Texas reservations became scouts for Texans and federal troops in their continuing war against the Southern Plains Indians that would end in 1875. Truly, the Brazos River Indian Reservation failure was a case of the wrong place at the wrong time. You can now go to Track 28 for directions back to the Courthouse Square and the Old Post Office Museum and Art Center in downtown Graham. To get back to the Old Post Office Museum and Art Center, 
retrace your route back west on Farm to Market 2179 to the stop sign at Cliff Drive, which is also Farm to Market 2179. Turn right and go to the first traffic light, which is 4th Street. Go left and proceed 1.2 miles through three traffic lights to the intersection of 4th and Elm. Go left on Elm Street to the next traffic light at 3rd Street. Go right less than one-tenth of a mile, and the museum will be on the left. Now, let's go to track 29 and the conclusion of your tour. Friends, it's been a real pleasure to guide you on the Young County History Driving Tour. I want you to know you have visited 19 of the 32 state or national historical markers that are located in Young County. You have also visited two Young County History Tour markers that were recently erected by the Graham Convention and Visitors Bureau. Now, if you desire to visit any of the other historic sites, we've made a map available to you at the Old Post Office Museum and Arts Center, the Graham Chamber of Commerce, or the Graham CVB office and books that contain accounts of the historic events you've just been told about on your tour can be reviewed at either the Library of Graham or the Wildcatter Guest Ranch Library six miles southeast of Graham on Highway 16. And I'd like to also invite you to take the walking tour of our downtown square. The brochure for the walking tour can be obtained at any of the aforementioned locations. Friends, we'd like to thank you for taking the driving tour and we hope you'll visit us again. There's so much more to see and do in historical Young County, but that's another story. <laughs>